0: July 10th, 1973, it's 3 a.m. in Rome. One of the world's most infamous instances of kidnapping is about to take place. 16-year-old John Paul Getty III, the grandson of oil tycoon John Paul Getty, is picked up by an Italian criminal organization. His captors demand a $17 million ransom for his release. They must have thought his grandfather the richest man in the history of the world at that point, would pay up. But Getty Sr. refuses to pay up, and it falls on the kid's mother, Gail Harris, to arrange for the ransom. By now, the amount had been negotiated down to around $3 million, but Gail still did not have enough money to pay the ransom. John Paul Getty only agreed to pay about $2 million, the maximum allowed by law to be tax deductible. He was willing to pay the other 1 million dollars but only as a loan to his son, John Paul Getty Jr., the boy's father. These events are chronicled in the 2017 film All the Money in the World where Michelle Williams plays Gail Harris. The most instructive moment of the film comes towards the end, When frustrated at not being able to put the money together to rescue her son, Gail remarks, Everybody thinks I have the money. The newspapers, the kidnappers, they all think I'm rich. You know what they call it? Credit. And then she has a brainwave. In order to try and outwit the kidnappers, she decides to announce that she has the money arranged. All she needs is for them to think that she has the money and maybe the police can outfox the kidnappers during the exchange? The world of finance runs to a large extent on this concept of credit. Parties often trust each other to be good for the money which allows transactions to take place faster and more smoothly. The problem is that chaos emerges if this trust is betrayed or it falls apart. John Paul Getty III was eventually rescued from his captors after a substantial ransom was paid. But for the Indian financial system in the summer of 1992, there were no happy endings. Significant views of trust had come to light as the Harshad Mehta scandal broke. The credit in the system was shattered. But what were the exact machinations that had enabled this? And could the system possibly recover? Hello and welcome to Book of Sins, a podcast from The Economist that delves into the economics of financial scams and tries to decipher how they could have taken place. I'm your host, Tari Kluskar. In Season 1, we are looking back at the 1992 stock market scam in India and the role played by Harshad Mehta, a broker with the nickname Big Bull. This is Episode 3, The Mechanism. In the previous episode, we saw how Harshad Mehta had embedded himself into the interbank money market and, as a broker for banks, was facilitating them to buy and sell government securities to maintain government stipulated reserves and ratios. But he had also managed to get at least one of the bank's officials to be in cahoots with him. With them, falsifying paperwork allowing him to siphon money out of that market and use it to pump up the stock market where he had become a larger-than-life figure. The scam began with small amounts that snowballed into an avalanche of avarice that engulfed the entire system. In this week's episode, we dive deeper into how exactly this whole process worked and what it can teach us about how financial systems function and when they become dysfunctional. Financial systems of any kind have developed and run based on trust since the beginning of history. Whether it was credit agreements between merchants in Sumeria 5,000 years ago, or merchants looking for financing in Italy in the 15th century, or banks doing multi-billion rupees worth of transactions among themselves today, and every financial scandal, every scam, every dodgy operator that has ever existed has resulted from some way in which this trust or what Gail Harris would sort have of called credit in all the money in the world could be exploited and abused. And the game usually is up when that abuse comes to light. Sometimes by accident, sometimes by design. In the case of the 1992 security scam, It was a mixture of both. In our last episode, we described how to keep the banking system smoothly running, the huge money market saw deals worth thousands of crores of rupees each day. To understand the mechanics of the 1992 security scam, we will have to understand how precisely these transactions were carried out. However, for the sake of keeping things non-technical and accessible, I'll only access the... Key elements we need to understand to follow the mechanism or the heist that brokers like Harshad Mehta were pulling off with a little inside help from morally unscrupulous bank employees. On April 22, 1992, journalist Sujeta Dalal had gotten a tip-off that Harshad Mehta had been summoned to the State Bank of India. His Toyota Lexus, which we mentioned in the last episode, was India's only car of that model at that point, was parked outside the bank's headquarters and had blown the cover of what was supposed to be a clandestine chat with the SBI chairman, M.N. Goipurya. This was after the bank had discovered that through R. Sitaraman, a man we first met attending his son's mundan in the last episode, Harshad Mehta had been able to falsify paperwork to hide money that he had been able to then divert into the stock market for his own speculative purposes. The bank asked Harshad to return the money immediately. In fact, Sucheta Dalal reported in her piece that the bank was, and I quote, making frantic efforts to reconcile the books of its Securities and Investment Department in the wake of the discovery that several hundred crore rupees had been advanced without following due procedure and possibly without collateral. Quote. So why should a bank be advancing money to a broker? To understand this, we need to understand a key aspect of how the money market worked. When banks had to exchange government securities... For example, a bank needing cash would sell them or a bank with surplus cash would buy them perhaps to meet some kind of reserve requirements. Those banks would usually transact through a broker. Banks wouldn't usually sell or buy the instruments outright. Rather, they typically would use them as collateral to either make a very short-term loan to another bank or borrow money from another bank for a very short time. That short time usually would be a period of 15 days. And to keep the loan market going, they would usually roll over some of those loans past that period as well if both the banks agreed. Because there were only a few brokers, a lot of them were almost like house brokers for particular banks and enjoyed a very high level of trust with the bank's executives. Harshad Mehta had emerged as one such for the State Bank of India. There were others in other banks who will meet later in the saga who were pulling off more or less the same scheme. The biggest power the broker wielded was that the banks would usually transfer the money to the other bank using the broker as the conduit. Sameer K. Barua and Jayant Verma of IIM Ahmedabad describe this basic process in their 1993 paper about the mechanism of the scam. And I quote, The normal settlement process in government securities is that transacting banks make payments and deliver the securities directly to each other. The broker's only function is to bring the buyer and seller together and help them negotiate the terms for which he earns a commission from both parties. It does not handle either the cash or the securities. During the scam, however, the banks or at least some banks adopted an alternative settlement process which was similar to the process used for settling transactions in the stock market. In this settlement process, deliveries of securities and payments are made through the broker. That is, the seller hands over the securities to the broker who passes them on to the buyer. While the buyer gives the check to the broker then makes the payment to the seller. In this settlement process, the buyer and the seller may not even know whom they have traded with, both being known only to the broker, quote. This gave the brokers the chance to put their hand into the cookie jar. Because banks did not know who they were transacting with, the brokers had immense power in terms of that information and they could manipulate it to their advantage. And they took that chance. Imagine you have to send a birthday cake to your friend across town. But for some reason, you have no idea who's selling a cake in the city. You hire a delivery agent who has that knowledge and ask him to do two things. Buy a cake and deliver it to your friend on her birthday, which is, say for argument's sake, two weeks away. The agent knows that the main deliverable here is your friend getting a cake two weeks later. In the meantime, let's say he gambles with your money and through shady tactics at the casino makes a neat little profit. Then, exactly two weeks later, he buys a cake and delivers it. You and your friend are none the wiser about what just happened. While the delivery agent just pocketed a neat little profit. You, in essence, funded the delivery guy's personal gambling habit. This is effectively what happened during the scam. As Barua and Verma write in their paper, quote, The scam was in essence a diversion of funds from the banking system, in particular the interbank market in government securities, to brokers for financing their operations in the stock market, quote. You might be wondering where trust and credit feature here. Banks often never exchanged the actual physical securities when they were making transactions in the money market. The bonds and treasury bills, those physical securities would still lie with the bank because it was much easier just to exchange a note that said the bank had those securities and the loan could be taken against that. That document was called a bank receipt, or a BR for short. Across the banking system, BRs were often taken at face value, and as long as everyone trusted or believed that the document was all right, the funds would flow easily in the system. In case of some securities... Such as government bonds, the RBI only maintained a centralized record called the Subsidiary General Ledger, or SGL, at the public debt office and never actually issued physical securities. For such securities, it had actually asked banks not to issue bank receipts. But banks, usually because it was very easy to do so, violated this guideline routinely. It just made things simpler. I mean, if SBI is telling you that they have... 11.75% 11.75% Government of India bonds maturing in 2010 worth rupees 100 crore with them. Maybe they have it. Just like the kidnappers thought, just because Gail Harris is related to John Paul Getty, she must have the money. This is exactly where the likes of Harshad Mehta realized that the broker could have his cake and eat it too. The brokers either got banks to give them bankers' checks which were supposed to be used to buy securities from another bank. But they never bought those at all and deposited the cheque in their own accounts instead to be deployed in the stock market. Another mechanism, and this is where a mere clever, although shifty maneuver crosses over into outright fraud, was that the brokers got banks to issue fake PRs, money given to the broker to deliver securities that did not even exist. To cite just one example, when 21st March 1992, Harshad Mehta was supposed to deliver a security, an 11.5% bond maturing in 2007, worth 170 crore rupees to SBI. SBI paid the money into his bank account, but the security never showed up. The bank officials did not initially pick up on this because Sitaraman, Harshad's inside man at the bank, had forged entries showing fictitious transactions from other banks to account for the missing 170 crores. But now that they had started scrutinizing their accounts, the fraud became evident. These were exactly the kind of transactions Harshad had been called to explain and reconcile in April. Initially, he claimed that he had the bank receipts and that he could deliver the securities. But then he finally admitted that he did not and said that he would pay the money. Astonishingly, he cuffed up that money over the next week. He paid 240-odd crore rupees on April 13th, 140-odd crores on April 18th, 160 crores another two days later. He was almost done filling a 570 crore rupees hole and all that remained was a puny check of 6 crore rupees, literally just 1% of the outstanding amount that he had to deliver. The date for delivery? April 24th, 1992. Unfortunately, on April 23rd, The potential cover-up was front-page news. And as soon as Suchet story was published, all hell broke loose. The federal investigative body, the CVI, was called on as more shenanigans started coming to light. The most puzzling question initially was, how on earth had Harshad Mehta produced almost 600 crore rupees in 10 odd days like it was no big deal? Had he sold some of his shares? Who had paid him the money? It turned out all his money had come from one bank, the National Housing Bank or NHB, which incidentally was a subsidiary of the Reserve Bank of India, the very institution that is supposed to be the banking watchdog. The rabbit hole suddenly looked deep, confusing and scary for anyone who was looking into it. Let's be clear about one thing here. This scam was really not about swindling banks outright. Harshad Mehta or any of the other operators were not out there to just steal some money and get out of the country or any of those kind of schemes. In fact, some of the banks were happy to play along with the Sharad as long as they got a cut of the profits, which helped boost their own bottom line in an environment crippled by tight government regulation. A cover story in the magazine India Today in 1993 spelt it out as such. Quote, Banks, strangled by the government's tight credit policy and in a rush for profits, found in Harshad Mehta's quick-stepping securities deals a perfect answer to make easy money. And in return, weren't averse to helping the brash broker out, even if it meant breaking the rules. As long as the cookie jar was refilled without the RBI, the bank vigilance officials or the government noticing, the cycle would have continued as it had for some time. But Harshad Mehta's outsized ambitions punctured the bubble and not so much as opened a can of worms as exploded one right onto the government's supper table. But that doesn't mean the scam was a one-man job. Like any good heist, it had a whole ecosystem that had propped it up. And there were many others who were active and eager participants. The story of those others, next time on Book of Sins. Book of Sins is written and presented by me, Thariq Laskar. The executive producer of Book of Sins is Jayanth Nanjapa. Research for this episode has drawn from numerous sources but the two main ones are the book the Scam by Sujeta Dalal and Devashish Basu and the paper Security Scam, Genesis Mechanics and Impact by Sameer K. Barua and Jayant R. Verma published in Vikalpa, the IIM Ahmedabad Journal in 1993. The background music for this episode is by Lee Roswell. If you like this episode, please leave us a 5-star review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. It helps the podcast to be discovered. And once again, thank you for listening. This has been an Economist presentation.